I next met with Dr. Barbara Burtness, and to begin, we followed up on a theme with Dr. Posner, the differential treatment effects of head and neck cancer based on HPV status, and Dr. Burtness commented on recent data from the classic Phase three Extreme trial published in 2008 in the New England Journal demonstrating a survival advantage in metastatic disease when cetuximab was added to a 5-FU platinum regimen. This year at ESMO, there was a presentation from the specimens from the extreme study, and they had gotten, I think, 86% of the oropharynx cancers were available to them. They tested them for P16 using the same cut point that everybody else uses, and with that, they found about 9% of the metastatic oropharynx cancer cases were HPV-associated, which is what you would expect. And they did not find that cetuximab performed differently for the HPV positive or the HPV negative. And I don't know if you're familiar, but in the RTOG study that looked at chemoradiation and tried to see if altered fractionation of the radiation would improve survival, which was a negative study, but one of the studies that provided us the most information about HPV-associated oropharynx cancer In that study, they did a recursive partitioning analysis looking at whether patients who had HPV-associated cancer but were also smokers shared the very favorable outcome of the patients who had HPV-associated cancer but were not smokers. And these started to be pretty small subsets of patients that they were looking at. I don't think it was a definitive analysis. But it seemed to suggest that among the patients who had HPV-associated disease but had smoked more than 10 pack years, there was kind of an intermediate risk of recurrence. So what the Beringer study does is it takes patients who either have non-oropharynx sites with advanced enough stage that they're at risk for recurrence, or among the oropharynx cancer patients, those who have a significant tobacco exposure history. And they have to have finished their chemo radiation, and they have to be NED. Now, if they had residual nodes in the neck, and they get a neck dissection, that's fine, but they have to have had a CR at the primary. And then they get randomized two to one to a fatinib daily or placebo daily, and there are dose modifications for diarrhea, which is the main side effect of a fatinib, and there's suggestions how to manage the rash, because all EGFR inhibitors tend to cause rash. And then they stay on for 18 months. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival, but it's also powered for an overall survival difference. That's really fascinating. Any kind of, I guess, predictive markers that are being looked at in this study? So certainly P16 will be looked at, and the others are under discussion. The kind of the common things one would look at would be EGFR, nuclear EGFR, DNA repair enzyme like ERCC1. You know, the design of the study is kind of interesting in a weird way. It reminds me of breast cancer where you give adjuvant chemo and then long-term treatment with endocrine therapy. But I'm trying to think of comparable study designs in head and neck cancer. Have there been trials like this? So there's a lapatinib study which has recently completed accrual where lapatinib was given, I believe, during the chemo radiation as well as for a period of maintenance. There is a study that is coming in ECOG, ECOG 1311, which will be for patients who, you know, I described how if you do chemo radiation and then you have residual disease in the neck, you may be taken for a neck dissection, and that may remove all of your remaining cancer and be curative. But we do have data to say that if that neck dissection shows residual cancer, you're at higher risk for recurrence than if it doesn't. So in that group of patients who have residual disease at the neck dissection in a smaller randomized phase two design, 
they'll be randomized between afatinib and placebo. And that'll be concentrating on a group of patients we know to be very high risk. I think it's a really interesting design. It makes a lot of sense. I could see a lot of agents being tested in that sort of type of platform. But when you mentioned lapatinib, you know, what do we know in general about TKIs, afatinib, erlotinib, for that matter, gefitinib and lapatinib in head and neck cancer? So gefitinib has activity. There were a number of studies that looked at it, you know, either low dose or high dose. At 500, the response rate was about 10%. At reduced dose, the response rate was only a couple of percent. Erlotinib has about a 4% response rate. Afatinib has been compared head-to-head with cetuximab in metastatic recurrent platinum refractory patients, and it had a response rate of, I believe, 14%, anyway, quite comparable to cetuximab, and a progression-free survival that was quite comparable to cetuximab's. It's an irreversible inhibitor. It also hits HER2, so it may explain part of its additive potency over gefitinib or erlotinib. What about EGFR antibodies, particularly cetuximab, but also panitumumab? Where are we today in our understanding of these agents in the management of head and neck cancer? So cetuximab is clearly an active drug. It has a response rate when it's given by itself of 10 to 12%. It enhances platinum-based chemotherapy and improves survival. And I think as we've gotten comfortable using it in practice, it's clear that there's a subset of patients, we don't know how to pick them out a priori, who are extremely responsive to cetuximab, and their responses may be of long duration. And that's maybe between 10 and 20% of the patients. Could I just ask you before you go on, because I thought that was an interesting comment, and I'm not sure exactly how much experience the average oncologist in practice has with cetuximab, but are there patients that you can think of in your practice that you know you could really look at and say well, that person definitely benefited, you know, for a significant period of time with cetuximab, for example. Sure, and you see this most clearly actually in your most frail and elderly patients because they're the ones where you try cetuximab monotherapy. But we've had radiographic or clinical CRs that have lasted for upwards of twelve months, which is you know more than you usually get with platinum-based therapy in this disease. So I actually also have a patient who had that kind of a response to panitumumab. So panitumumab, as you may know, appears to have about the same response rate, but all of the randomized studies with this agent have been negative. It's not exactly clear whether it's truly such a different drug or if there were trial design issues. But the risk of allergic reactions clearly lower with panitumumab. And I had a patient who didn't actually have grade 3 allergic reaction to cetuximab, but her COPD was so bad that she couldn't really tolerate the grade 2 reaction. So we switched her to panitumumab. She had a clinical CR. It lasted for over a year. Wow. And she never got chemotherapy. So there is a subset of patients who are extremely sensitive. I've got to say, it sounds like it might have been a little bit nerve-wracking to be given that lady panitumumab, or did you feel pretty comfortable about it? Yeah. So high-grade reactions to panitumumab are quite uncommon, and it's not cross-reactive to cetuximab. Right now in your own clinical practice outside of a trial setting, in which situations do you use on EGFR antibody and which one? We quite commonly give cetuximab with chemotherapy for patients with metastatic recurrent disease. And if it is a fit person and they haven't had a large amount of platinum previously, I would give platinum 5-FU and cetuximab as it was done in the Vermorkin randomized trial that was published 
in the New England Journal. For more frail patients, we give cetuximab with either carboplatin or paclitaxel. And for the most frail patients, we may give it by itself. As a radiation sensitizer, cetuximab is also an active agent. But the question of whether it's as good as cisplatin, to my mind, remains unanswered. So we tend to pick it either for intermediate stage patients or for patients who are not good platinum candidates. Now, if you look at the forest plot from the long-term follow-up of the Bonner study, which was the randomized comparison of radiation to radiation plus cetuximab, the group of patients who are 65 and older, the error bars actually include one, and you may think that we don't have a lot of evidence to say that cetuximab is appropriate for those elderly and frail patients. But I have to say that I have used it with radiation in that setting, you know, I think successfully. What have you observed in terms of tolerability of cetuximab, particularly in these patients who have good responses and end up being treated for a long period of time? So it's quite similar to the colon cancer patients, I think. As patients have been on it for more than half a year or a year, you start to see the hypomagnesemia become quite severe, hard to keep up with. Patients develop blepharitis and corneal abrasions because they get misdirected lashes, and we actually are set up to trim the lashes in clinic for them now because, you know, they can get super infected and it can be quite uncomfortable. Can I just stop you on that? That sounds kind of interesting. Who does it? How often do you do it? Is it easy to do? It's extremely easy to do. I do it myself or my fellow does it. We keep sterile scissors stocked and somebody stands by to help me, but hmm. wow, it's straightforward. How often do you have to do it? Well, so it's really only the patients who've been on it for a long time, but then they may require it once a month or something. Wow, interesting. What about the dermatologic toxicity? Do you do anything preemptively, and how do you manage it? So I don't do anything preemptively because the oral antibiotics, I think, cause GI upset, and I'm so commonly giving emetogenic chemotherapy with it. I find that the majority of patients respond very well to anti-inflammatory treatment, so we start with hydrocortisone valerate 0.2%, and a lot of patients have a good response to that. The ones who have the most you know, aggressive or robust skin reactions, we may need to go to triamcinolone. Every once in a while, somebody says to me, oh, I'm going to a wedding, I'm going to be in a lot of pictures, can't you clear my skin up better? And we use three or four days of oral steroids, and that often works very nicely. I'm doing a study now of what we call total EGFR blockade, where we give cetuximab and erlotinib together. And some of those patients have had a much more marked rash, which appears to lead to some scarring, which is not something that you see all that commonly with cetuximab alone. You know, it's interesting you mentioned cetuximab and erlotinib because there's been a lot of excitement and again, lung cancer about a presentation about a year ago, cetuximab with a fat nib. This is a different situation, of course, you know, EGFR mutation, but there's evidence that maybe cetuximab, vatinib might work, and cetuximab or lotinib won't work. What do we know about these issues and strategies in head and neck cancer? So in a preclinical setting, you can see strong synergy between cetuximab plus gefitinib or cetuximab plus erlotinib. And there are a number of hypotheses about this. One is that there's just so much EGFR on a head and neck cancer cell, upwards of a million receptors per cell in head and neck cancer, that maybe the antibody is just too bulky to occupy all the EGFR and that you can downregulate EGFR signaling better by also getting a TKI in there. Another hypothesis that I'm very interested in is that 
it's quite clear now that EGFR in head and neck cancer can be translocated to the nucleus, and that once it's in the nucleus, it has a completely different set of actions. So it turns on transcription factors, it stabilizes PCNA, and it leads to treatment resistance through a whole different package of activities. And to do those, it needs to be phosphorylated, so a TKI can turn that off. And actually, nuclear translocation itself is downregulated by a TKI. So it may be that cetuximab is the best way to treat EGFR-positive cancers for the canonical signaling pathways of EGFR in the membrane, but that the TKIs are better for treating the nuclear activities of EGFR. And what about EGFR antibody like cetuximab with a fatinib? Do we know anything about that? Just what's known in non-small cell lung cancer. I do think that it would be very interesting because we know that HER2 and HER3 can be upregulated in some of these cancers. Yeah, it kind of seems from a distance that, you know, from the point of view of EGFR, I hate to say this because I know it's such an interest of yours, that it really hasn't really achieved that much for patients. I'll just throw it out there right now. Do you think, like, there's the potential, and you mentioned all the receptors, et cetera, or do we need to think about other pathways and approaches here, or both? We certainly need to also look at other pathways. But, you know, I will say that cetuximab is the first thing that ever advanced survival over platinum alone for metastatic recurrent disease, and it is very widely used in the disease. So what are the other pathways? MET may be quite important in a subset of head and neck cancer that are resistant to cetuximab. IGF-1R is clearly important in a subset of head and neck cancers, but our patients may not be great candidates for the IGF-1R inhibitors, which tend to have toxicity. People are looking at the possibility that PIK3CA might be a resistance factor for cetuximab. So there is a trial open that compares cetuximab to cetuximab plus a PIK3CA inhibitor, randomized phase 2. So I agree with you that there are many potential mechanisms of resistance. We're quite interested in aurora kinase as an enzyme which we know to be upregulated in HPV-negative cancers. We know that it confers resistance to cetuximab. We have good evidence of synthetic lethality in the lab when you combine an EGFR inhibitor with an aurora kinase inhibitor. So we're moving forward now with a phase one trial of the millennium aurora kinase inhibitor together with cetuximab and radiation. And we're working with a compound called CUDC-101, which combines EGFR inhibition with HDAC inhibition, and which appears to be active in phase one at present. I meant to ask you a practical question before. When you were talking about the way you utilize cetuximab in your own practice, what would you recommend to someone who lives in the so-called reaction belt? Would you just go ahead and substitute panitumumab, try cetuximab, or do neither? I might save it for a little later in the game if I thought that I was going to be exposing the patient to the possibility of a life-threatening reaction. But I do think that we have more knowledge about the impact of cetuximab on survival than we do of panitumumab. And, you know, I think that for a person who's got treatment refractory disease, I would attempt to treat them with cetuximab in a controlled setting. Interesting. Any other trials out there, phase three trials or you know, big randomized phase two trials that you're looking forward to seeing some answers from over the next couple of years? Yeah. So there's a study in ECOG 1305 where patients get platinum-based doublet chemotherapy, kind of dealer's choice, with or without bevacizumab. And so bevacizumab came to head and neck cancer, I think, late because people were worried about the potential for bleeding 
in patients who'd had neck dissections, might not have normal tissue planes around the carotid, that kind of thing. There had been some bleeding complications in the randomized gefitinib versus methotrexate study, as you may recall. So I think that there was initially a little bit of reluctance to take an anti-angiogenic forward in this setting. But this study now has about 220 patients on it. It's been through very stringent safety reviews for bleeding. It's been through pretty stringent futility analyses, actually, also. So I'm optimistic that this is going to be a positive trial. We're still accruing, but... It's interesting. I'm trying to think of you know what I've heard about any anti-angiogenic strategy in head and neck cancer. Do we know anything about Bev? So there was a trial from Ezra Cohen at the University of Chicago, Bevacizumab plus Erlotinib, which had uh, median overall survival over a year. It was pretty striking. And there have been some studies looking at incorporating it with chemoradiation. It wasn't so clear from the results of those studies whether or not there might not be a small increase in bleeding risk, but we've been monitoring that very closely on 1305. Yeah, and I see you have a commentary on bevacizumab or erlotinib. Maybe talk a little bit about what you were thinking when you wrote that. They did show good activity there. I think that the fact that it was a single institution, single arm study, and the results were actually not all that different than we had seen in a multicenter study without any targeted therapy in ECOG, the 2399. I thought it was hard to draw any firm conclusions. So that sounds really interesting. Bevacizumab and head and neck cancer, so I'll keep my eye out for that one. So maybe we can flip over and talk about taking care of patients a little bit more. And we get questions all the time that are emailed into us by oncologists in practice, and then we sort of keep a list of them. Whenever we get a chance, we try to throw them out in our program. So I haven't even read these, but if it's okay with you, I'm just going to we'll pick a few and just see what happens. Okay. All right. So here's the first one. Do you insert a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, a PEG tube, in all your head and neck patients receiving combined radiation therapy and chemo, if not in all, in whom? Okay. So we do not insert them in all patients. I think there are data now that suggest that the longer the PEG tube is in place, the worse the patient's long-term swallowing recovery is going to be. And obviously you could say, well, that's because you put it in in the people with the greatest swallowing impairment to start with. But we do believe that the more the patient swallows during treatment and the shorter the period of non-swallowing is, the better they're going to do in the long run. So we, in general, don't place a PEG. We try to help the patient with narcotics and nutritional supplements that are liquid, at the outset of treatment. If they're going to need a trach or if they're absolutely not swallowing, then obviously we place it. As they're going through chemoradiation, we see them on a very regular basis. We check their weight. And if there's something approaching 10% of body weight loss, or if they begin to head towards a range where we think they're going to be malnourished based on their prealbumin and their albumin, then we may place it. If they're very close to the end of their treatment, we may actually use a Dobhoff if we think that this is going to be a very short-term need for nutritional supplementation. Occasionally, a person comes in who, you know, doesn't quite need a trach, but we're concerned about their airway. And that is one of the few situations where we will sometimes use induction therapy because the response to chemotherapy is usually quite swift. All right, here's another one. 49-year-old man achieves a near-complete remission to combine chemo and radiation therapy for carcinoma of the right side of the floor of the mouth, but three months after finishing therapy, the only residual abnormality is a 1.6-onometer lymph node in the right neck. 
Would you biopsy that node? If positive, would you send the patient for surgery? If yes, what type of surgery? Resection of the abnormal lymph node versus complete right neck dissection. Yeah, so I think historically those patients have been sent for a modified radical neck dissection on a pretty routine basis. And the question that now arises, I think, is whether in the HPV-positive population where treatment responsiveness is higher, are we taking too many people to neck dissection? So a common paradigm and what's recommended in the NCCN guidelines is to wait for a PET at the 12-week mark. And there are good single-institution data, including from Memorial Sloan Kettering and elsewhere, that if the 12-week PET is negative, that the risk of failure in the neck is essentially zero. Now, there was a trial from NCI Canada that looked at a PET at 10 weeks, which seemed to suggest that it wasn't all that predictive. The first thing is that 10 weeks, I think, is too early because you still have FDG avidity related to radiation injury. And second of all, there may have been technical differences between the PETs that were used in that study and the memorial study. But so if the PET is negative at 12 weeks, you can feel pretty secure about not pursuing a node that's not growing. What we do is if the patient had really pretty bulky disease and we're quite worried about them, or if there's still palpable disease in the neck at four weeks post-chemo radiation, we'll get a CAT scan at that point. And then depending on kind of how it looks with respect to the Mancuso criteria, how big it is, whether or not it's got a necrotic center, what its shape is, we may attempt to needle it at that point to make a decision about whether or not we're waiting for that 12-week PET. And would assessing the HPV status or P16 staining be something you'd want to maybe know about to figure out what to do? We don't have enough data yet to say that because it's HPV positive, you don't have to pursue it. And in fact, there's a recent series from Canada where they showed that currently in their hands, because of the fact that the HPV is so common, even though the rate of residual positivity is lower in an HPV positive case, overall they have more HPV positive residual nodes now than HPV negative, just because everybody's got so many more HPV positive cases. So another sort of bread and butter practical issue, any interventions to reduce the incidence of mucositis during combined chemo radiation therapy? So there have been some small series that looked at using antifungal therapy. Obviously, there's some issues because all of these patients are on narcotics and the conazoles can impact the metabolism of fentanyl and other narcotics. But nystatin may be appropriate. We put a lot of emphasis on cleanliness, you know, just on hygiene, frequent warm water and baking soda rinses. I myself am not a huge fan of magic mouthwash and some of the other proprietary mixes because I think the alcohol that's in them slows the healing. Clearly, for the patients with the worst infield toxicity, systemic steroids will lead to an improvement, but we don't do that routinely. Here's another one. What are the advantages, if any, of intensity-modulated radiation therapy versus traditional radiation therapy? Clearly, IMRT has advantages over conventional radiation therapy. It can lead to better preservation of swallowing function. In some cases, it clearly leads to preservation of salivary gland function in some cases, For nasopharynx cancer, it allows you to stay away from some of the structures that traditionally had a lot of toxicity there. And I think the the only unresolved question is whether in the adjuvant setting, you may end up sparing areas that you really don't want to spare. 
So 55-year-old man with locally advanced unresectable squamous cell carcinoma, the larynx. What's your upfront treatment modality? So we would use chemo radiation. I think the question is how locally advanced. You know, if there's extensive destruction of the cartilage, many people would favor immediate total laryngectomy. If there's intermediate invasion of the cartilage, we sometimes take a chemo selection approach. And as long as they have a good response, go on to chemo radiation. If they're not responsive, go straight to laryngectomy. Are there any predictors or response to cetuximab in head and neck cancer? None that are known. What's the mechanism of synergy between radiation therapy and cetuximab? So it seems likely that the anti-apoptotic effects of EGFR signaling lead to radiation resistance, and that by modifying that, you may have a higher proportion of the cells enter apoptosis. There also may be direct effects of the cetuximab, either anti-inflammatory or cytotoxic. Any data regarding the use of capecitabine versus continuous infusion 5-FU for locally advanced head and neck cancer? So capecitabine leads to, you know, worse stomatitis. And so if you were combining it with radiation, I think you'd be quite worried about high-grade stomatitis. We don't use infusional 5-FU during radiation all that commonly either. We generally would use high-dose cisplatin or weekly cisplatin if we had to substitute carboplatin and felt the need for a second agent, that would usually be paclitaxel. 66-year-old man recurs in both lungs three years after finishing combined radiation therapy and chemo with cisplatinum, docetaxel, and 5-FU. What would your first-line therapy likely be? If the person was fit, my first-line therapy would be cisplatin, 5-FU, and cetuximab. 68-year-old man who, four years after finishing combined chemotherapy and radiation therapy for oropharyngeal squamous cell cancer, is found to have a three-centimeter mass in the right upper lobe of the lung. Wedge resection shows squamous cell cancer compatible with metastatic disease. Margins are negative. Would you recommend any therapy post-resection? There are not clear data to say that for metastatic head and neck cancer, starting the chemotherapy early in the setting of metastatectomy when the patient has no evidence of disease and you have no way of following their response to chemotherapy would be beneficial. I have to say, for a solitary three-centimeter lesion that was three years out, I would probably go back to the pathologist and make sure that we were really certain that this wasn't a non-small cell lung cancer, look for in situ changes, look for things that would tell me that the person deserved adjuvant chemotherapy for lung cancer. Yeah, that's a really good point. Getting back to the practical management and different clinical scenarios, are there any clinical scenarios that you think are important to talk about that we haven't talked about today that clinicians in practice commonly encounter, decisions they have to make that you might want to comment on or maybe that you get questions about? And so I think the two things that we haven't talked about that people talk a lot about are transoral surgery and induction chemotherapy. So transoral surgery is a novel approach, either robotic or laser, to resecting small oropharynx cancers. So in the past, you know, oropharynx cancer was considered unresectable because you either had to do a total glossectomy if the tumor was in the base of the tongue, or you had to split the jaw to even get there. But now with robotic approaches for the T1 and T2 cancers, it's actually possible to do a good cancer operation with relatively low morbidity. 
And there are some single institution series, one from the University of Pennsylvania, another from WashU in St. Louis, with, you know, it appears to be quite low local recurrence rates in these patients. What do you actually observe yourself as you see these patients? Is it a much less morbid procedure, deforming, et cetera? It's a much less morbid procedure, and the patients are going for it now who haven't really been offered surgery in 20 years. So for a long time, these patients have been going to chemoradiation. And a transoral robotic operation, they are going to need adjuvant radiation, but they may not need chemotherapy. The adjuvant radiation may be a slightly lower dose than they would have needed for definitive treatment. And in good hands, this is a very good operation. Now, the issue is, I think, the judgment of who's a good candidate for this. Because if you put the patient through a big operation at the tonsil or the base of the tongue, and you leave them with positive margins, and they end up needing definitive therapy anyway, then I think their swallowing recovery is compromised by the fact that they had such a big operation there. But for the patients with T1, T2, increasingly I think it's seen as a good choice, and I think we're going to be seeing cooperative group trials that look at what's the best adjuvant therapy for these patients, because the uptake of this approach has been pretty dramatic over the past couple of years. And then the other issue is induction chemotherapy. And as you know, there had been randomized trials in the past which demonstrated that if you use three-drug induction that included docetaxel, you got better survival than if you used two-drug induction that didn't include docetaxel. But there had never really been definitive data comparing an induction approach to a non-induction approach. And this year at ASCO, there were two presentations. The first was the DECIDE trial, was presented by Ezra Cohen from the University of Chicago. And in this trial, patients got two cycles of induction, followed by the University of Chicago chemoradiation approach, which is hyperfractionated radiation with hydroxyurea, 5-FU, and docetaxel one week on, one week off for a number of cycles. Or they got the same chemoradiation without the induction chemotherapy. And in this study, there was no significant advantage for the use of induction chemotherapy, although you, in subset analyses, you might have thought that you saw some advantage among the N2C and 3 patients. But an important point to make about that trial is that we don't really know if that's because it's a study of induction versus no induction, or it's a study of including platinum versus not including platinum. Then the other study was the Paradigm trial, was presented by Robert Haddad from the Dana-Farber, and this looked at the approach that had been studied in the TAX324 study that established TPF induction chemotherapy as an option. And so what they did here was the control arm got conventional chemoradiation with high cisplat, and the other arm got TPF chemotherapy for three cycles, followed by carboplatin and radiation, or in patients who didn't respond to the induction, docetaxel plus accelerated fractionation radiation. And in that study, not only wasn't there a benefit for the use of induction, it actually seemed to be a non-significant decrease in treatment outcomes. Both of the studies were pretty underpowered. Both of the studies had been designed in the era before we appreciated the importance of HPV, and so they were based on expecting a much higher event rate than they got. But nonetheless, neither of them really gave you much reason to think that patients should be routinely getting induction chemotherapy. And are there any situations in your own practice outside a trial setting where you'll use induction chemo? Yes, there are. So one is the patient who can't lie flat for their treatment planning and their treatment from the radiation because of the size of the tumor. Another is the setting that I mentioned earlier, if it looks as if the patient is going to require a tracheostomy early in the radiation. 
Another might be if there was some logistical or intercurrent medical reason that they couldn't begin radiation immediately. And then lastly is that setting of the early T4 larynx cancer, where we can't quite decide if the patient's going to need a total laryngectomy or not, and we use the induction chemotherapy as a chemoselection approach in the belief that the same patients will be sensitive to chemoradiation as are sensitive to the induction chemotherapy.